save our wildlife, save the environment, save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with L.A. Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. Good morning and welcome to Our Wild World. In our quest to understand how economic models affect wildlife and conservation, we are bringing you the law enforcement side of things. Today, with my guest Ken McLeod, we're going to delve into how the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service works to intercept illegal wildlife trafficking. Ken was a USFW special agent who worked undercover and was involved in some of the most high-profile busts of poaching, poachers, trafficking, and the illegal live animal trade. We often think of the big and furries and charismatic species when we hear about illegal trade in the black markets, but there are numerous treasured and rare species of reptiles, insects, and others that collectors will go to any length to get. And the poachers and collectors are not always what we picture as bad guys, as portrayed by the mass media. Today, Ken is going to take us through how the fish and wildlife system works, why permits are necessary, and how undercover operations happen, and to see them through to the courts when working across national and international boundaries. We've got a lot of interesting ground to cover today, so welcome, Ken. Well, it's an honor to be here, Ellie. Thank you very much. Well, you're so welcome. We've been chatting for a little while through Facebook and email, and you have such an incredible history and what you've done. So I think um, our listeners today are going to be are going to enjoy our conversation today and learn a little bit more about the inner workings of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and some of the amazing stories you have to tell. So um, how about we start with you giving us a little brief background of your history and how you wound up at the United States Fish and Wildlife Service as a special agent and undercover work. Well, uh, to just summarize things and put it succinctly, I was told that I was uh, still in diapers and would uh, be out in our backyard at our home when I was growing up and calling the lizards to come out of the woodpile. And uh, from there, I started reading every book I could get my hands on, on reptiles and amphibians and exotic animals, uh, thought I would pursue a career in uh, in the zoological field. Uh, at the age of 10, I was on the back of a horse for a couple of years uh, uh, during the summers, uh, guiding people on horseback trips and always looking down for lizards and snakes. At the age of 12 and 13, I spent the summers as a teacher's assistant at Foothill College in Los Altos, California. Uh, and also, I was the curator of their live museum, which included uh, large boas and pythons 
pythons, uh, some of which were actually larger or weighed more than I did at the time, like a boa constrictor that was 55 pounds and a Burmese python that was, you know, about uh, 60 pounds. And uh, so I had this internal desire to learn uh, as much as I could about wildlife and plants and uh, uh, continue with that straight through high school, learning great study habits, but always having a uh, herpetology book hidden behind my American history book or whatever class I happen to be in studying uh, scientific names and uh, uh, toxicology and venomous reptiles and how uh, venoms from various snakes can be used uh, in different medicines to treat human diseases. Uh, so finally, I heard about a new program called the Wildlife Inspector Program with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And uh, for over a year, I went once a week to the local office who said that they would be starting this program. And uh, after about a year and a half, I applied. I finally opened it. I was hired as a wildlife inspector in Burlingame, California. And within months, uh, our supervisor, who was a transfer out of New York and was experienced, uh, was involved in uh, stealing elephant ivory jewelry out of the uh, evidence room, uh, which I testified against him in uh, an administrative hearing, along with other uh, employees and and uh, I was, uh, you know, as soon as he left, which was right away, uh, I was promoted to the supervisory wildlife inspector for the Port of San Francisco, California, which included the airport, uh, the Oakland Airport, uh, the San Jose Airport, the Oakland Mail Facility, uh, the seaports. And so I started uh, very quickly learning how to uh, hire and fire and uh, manage manage people and uh, teach uh, wildlife identification techniques. Uh, shortly after that, I was I applied and was offered the job as special agent in the late 1970s. Uh, actually, I was hired as a wildlife inspector on May 28th, 1977. By 1979, I was offered the special agent position which I turned down because I had recently been through a divorce. I got married at age 20, and uh, uh, we uh, quickly be began going our separate ways. Me, law enforcement, uh, my ex, another direction. And uh, so I turned that the job down then, but uh, and called Clark Babin, the chief of law enforcement, and explained he was kind about it. But I was told I'd never be given another opportunity for turning up that position down. And uh, in uh, 1987, I applied again for some openings. Uh, and with the Fish and Wildlife Service, unlike other federal agencies, they only advertise for special agent openings every two to three years and normally only to fill 
maybe 10 positions as opposed to like the FBI or U.S. Customs or AT&F that will hire 200 at a time or 150 agents at a time. So the competition is very high and uh, very stiff. And uh, a lot of ex-state game wardens are applying with uh, great reputations and many years of experience. But long story short, I was hired in 1988 and began my special agent career uh, on May 8th, uh, 1988, uh, in a group of 23 total uh, wildlife special agents. Uh, We had to attend the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center in uh, Glencoe or Brunswick, Georgia, which is kind of like Quantico South. And uh, uh, we uh, had intense training for uh, two months, which was the basic criminal investigator school that any federal agent has to take and pass. Uh, They do fail people uh, out of that class very often. And uh, uh, if you do not, uh, uh, if you fail one weekly exam, you get one makeup test. And if you uh, uh, fail another test, you're gone. So every Monday morning, there were empty chairs uh, uh, where people would be missing and gone. and, And nobody would say where they went, but we all knew that they had failed the test. Uh, Fortunately, uh, I was scared enough that I spent my time and probably the one thing I got out of high school was study habits uh, to study herpetology. And at that time, I was studying for my exams. And so I went through the criminal investigator school and uh, scared to death that I would fail and let people down that had supported me for the job. And I uh, surprisingly uh, was the... Uh, honor graduate academic uh, with the highest score uh, overall for academics in the criminal investigator school. Then we went on for another almost eight weeks in the wildlife special agent basic class. Uh, And uh, that was my forte. And uh, although I studied just as hard in that, uh, I be, I too was the academic honor graduate in that uh, position. So the service seemed to be pleased with uh, uh, my work ethic and transfer me back to Sacramento, California, but let me work kind of in between Sacramento, California and Burlingame, California, because my wife was a wildlife inspector for 26 years working out of Burlingame, California, and the commute from where we lived uh, was a little more to Sacramento than it was to Burlingame. So uh, within a couple months, they uh, the special agent in charge, David McMullen in Portland, Oregon, one of the people that 
had a huge role in hiring me, uh, formally transferred me back to San Francisco, California, where I began my career as a special agent for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Wow. I can imagine you and your wife had some pretty interesting dinner conversations, um, being both wildlife inspectors and uh, with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. So, from becoming a special agent and that's a, a stellar background. Thank you so much for that. It tells us just how much is involved when you see the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service symbol, logo, or their trucks running around, or watch any of the television shows today about wardens and things like that, that this is serious, serious business. So um, from special agent, you went undercover. So, And that's where a lot of your really intriguing and interesting things began to happen. You had to have false identities, you had to be an actor, you had to sort of blend in, and you had to participate in doing, um, in representing a buyer or a seller to snag these poachers and uh, this to be able to enforce the laws. So um, what are, give us just a brief little uh, bit about why these permits, the Lacey Act and wildlife permits, everything from having exotics in your backyard, big cats to fish to orchids, why these permits from U.S. Fish and Wildlife are in place? And then we'll get into um, what happens when people break the law and start trading these uh, species illegally. Well, we... uh to start with, there are a, a huge number of U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service or wildlife laws. Not all of them require permits under the law itself. But uh, as an example, you know, there's the Endangered Species Act, the Eagle Act, the uh, Migratory Bird Treaty Act, the Duck Stamp, the Airborne Hunting Act, the Marine Mammal Protection Act, the uh, the Endangered Species Act, if I haven't already mentioned it. You mentioned the Lacey Act, which is really the big kicker for uh, fish and wildlife law enforcement. It gives the, uh, it is a felony statute, uh, one of the few wildlife felony statutes. The other one would be the second offense uh taking or sale of a, uh, a bald eagle or uh, the sale of a migratory bird. But the, uh, the Lacey Act is what was once called the Black Bass Act, became the Lacey Act, and then was revised in, I believe, 1981 and uh, uh, became uh, a felony for one to import uh, export or uh, transport in interstate commerce uh, wildlife without a permit that would be required, such as, say, Australia protects all their wildlife. So if uh, somebody went over and collected a bunch of uh, wallaby skins or live shingleback skink lizards, and or we smuggled- could say elephant parts or lion any, trophies now 
and we can't. And uh, again, there there is uh, the uh, you know African Elephant Act itself, uh, as well as the Endangered Species Act, uh, the, you know the Wild Bird Conservation Act, which actually uh, was initiated by one of our special operations cases. Uh, but uh, to, to to try to focus back on your question, the the Lacey Act basically says it's illegal to import, export, or transport in interstate commerce any fish or wildlife or plants uh, taken in violation of state, federal, or foreign law. So if somebody goes to from California to Nevada and collects, say, a protected Gila monster without a permit from the state of Nevada and crosses state lines, that is a felony, or that can be a felony Lacey Act. In interstate commerce, uh, to try to simplify this, uh, the value of the wildlife or the wildlife service, like in a hunting guide, has to be over $350. On importation and exportation to and from the United States, the value of the wildlife can only only has to be one cent, one penny. Wow. So it uh, it is a big hammer for uh, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. I and know I had to. Um, I work in Africa, as you know, and our listeners know, and sure. I import uh, export from Africa, import to the U.S. artifacts, and I have to fill out the Lacey Act every time I do this, and. Um, it goes through customs, and you know the U.S. Fish and Wildlife lady here in Denver is my friend, and we go through this. And yes, a couple times things were confiscated because they had feathers on them. Who would think? So, as Ken said, the Lacey Act is very important. And what we're learning here today is how critical the laws that we have in place to protect our wildlife internationally, nationally, um, not just the big species, the ones that are all um, over the news today, but, you know, herpetology, snakes, fish, insects, these are all rare and wildlife is protected. So we're going to take a short break here right now, and then we're going to get into the meat of some bad pun, sorry, Um, the delve into some of Ken's uh, more amazing activities, and he's got astonishing stories to tell. So stick with us, and we'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa 
and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to Our Wild World. And welcome back. This is Ellie. You're listening to Our Wild World. And my guest, Ken McLeod, uh, retired from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service as a special agent who worked majority of his career undercover. So, Ken, just now we were talking about the Lacey Act and, you know, the laws that are in place and why they're there to protect species. And uh, last week we had talked with Bill Clark, who was ex-Interpol and uh, CITES uh, committee, the, the, the big group that sets what can be traded and sets quotas. So you had just mentioned um, that flora was, plants were not included in the Lacey Act, and then it switched. And uh, so U.S. Fish and Wildlife does need to work closely and follow and keep up with what's going on with CITES, the Convention on International Trade of Endangered Species of Flora and Fauna. Yeah? Absolutely. Yes, CITES is enforced uh, seven days a week, 365 days a year. Uh, The uh, uh, Endangered Species Act itself, 16 U.S.C. 1538, is the statute that gives uh, the Fish and Wildlife Service the authority to enforce this international treaty of over 200 countries now uh, that have listed uh, species in CITES, either CITES Appendix 1, which is the most endangered, CITES Appendix 2, which is the uh, status where there's trade allowed, but permits have to be issued so the trade can be monitored, and CITES Appendix 3, which would be if a particular country, say, uh, 
you know, uh, Latin American country is particularly interested in the export of a certain type of armadillo. Uh, they can list that species as CITES Appendix 3, and then any uh, importations in the United States or any other CITES country, uh, certificate of origin has to be uh, provided to prove that it did not originate in that one country that has decided that they're very concerned with that particular species and that population in their country. So in a nutshell, that's kind of what CITES is. And then the Lacey Act is what we use for the, uh, the felony charging. Uh, when appropriate, the, the U.S. Department of Justice will take the misdemeanor CITES or Endangered Species Act violations and predicate, uh, use the Lacey Act and predicate the foreign violations or U.S. violations under the Lacey Act, the way it's written under the uh, prohibitions, uh, and predicate the foreign law or CITES, which would be U.S. law uh, under the Lacey Act, and if it's an importation or exportation, it automatically becomes a felony if the Department of Justice uh, so uh, desires to charge it out that way. Wow. So we've um, spent some time laying up the foundation and the groundwork of how the law enforcement side works. So um, on previous episodes, our listeners can go back and learn some more about these various agencies from our various guests. So now we're going to jump into what happens when it goes wrong. And we, you find, the, the service finds somebody that is dealing on the black market. They've, they've, they're trading, buying, selling illegal species and you were involved in this some very high profile cases the one uh, with Anson Wong known as the Lizard King and uh, there's been books written about him and a documentary film journalists such as Brian Christie have worked you've worked with and they come to people like you to answer questions and then um, so that's more of an international thing and you could tell us a little bit about that bust and what it involved and then um, we're going to come over to that it's not, not all just happening overseas in Asia or Myanmar, that these things happen right here in our own backyard. So let's start with some of the juicy details, so to speak, of when you're involved in a bust and undercover. Well, actually, in, in my experience, I was asked as a wildlife inspector two years into my Fish and Wildlife Service law enforcement career to work a year and a half undercover, which is the one and only time I've ever heard of a wildlife inspector being asked to uh, work undercover. And I was provided with false identifications. I was mentored for a couple of year, year or days, excuse me, in uh, Nashville, Tennessee, under the uh, guidance of the infamous Willie J. Parker, the author of the book, uh, Holt, I'm a Federal Game Warden, who since he has since passed away. And uh, at the request of Willie J. Parker and the special agent in charge in uh, Atlanta, Georgia, they had a real problem with 
uh, in the U.S. of poaching and interstate transportation of eastern indigo snakes. And believe it or not, back then, the American alligator was an endangered species. uh, So they sent me back to infiltrate a particular individual uh, and his group. And over a year and a half, I was uh, spending... A great deal of time uh, on airplanes flying back and forth to uh, Columbia, South Carolina to meet a gentleman by the name of Johnny Librand, who introduced me later to Hayward Clamps, who was the manager for the Miami uh, Serpentarium under Bill Host. Bill Host had no idea what Hayward Clamps was doing, but he's an infamous snake collector and uh, uh, Again, a long story short, a year and a half combined into a couple of sentences, uh, I was meeting in motel rooms in Miami with uh, Hayward Clamps and uh, Johnny Librand, who introduced us, and buying uh, 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 times up to 23 adult, gravid, or female eastern indigo snakes, uh, and uh, they had collected even more than that, but I didn't have enough buy money uh, with me from the government to buy any more, and uh, the my suitcase with the uh, uh, the 23 adult pregnant or gravid uh, eastern indigo snakes on that one trip literally you know broke the handle off my suitcase with just the weight and I had drilled holes in the bottom of the my suitcase to be able to check my luggage in and duct tape the uh, the suitcases shut on every visit and so uh, this this brings up a question I'm sorry to interject um, you know we hear about Uh, a lot of black market trade going through airports and customs and so did you have like special clearance to be able to get through um, airport security with these animals while you were undercover? At the time, no. At the time, I was a wildlife inspector and uh, I was not authorized to carry a firearm. Uh, I had no backup to sit per se. Uh, the, so how did you not get busted in an airport with these animals? Well, at that time, uh, it was before 9-11, and the, uh, uh, the suitcase was just checked in as luggage, because wow. no, I knew that the, uh, the luggage departments were pressurized just like the cabin of the airplane, so uh, the temperature didn't drop that low for to harm the reptiles. Uh, I already had air holes in the bottom of the suitcase that nobody looked at. So uh, I could ship my evidence back with me just you know, like they were dirty clothes uh, from a trip. And that's what I did. Wildlife inspectors and special agents have the authority to inspect anything that's being imported in the United States or exported from the United States under the authority of the Endangered Species Act and the Lacey Act. And, uh, but at that time, uh, I was given a boot knife to carry uh, because my first meeting with 
I had my first undercover experience, uh, but my first meeting with uh, Johnny Libran uh, was uh, you know, basically uh, we met him uh, out in, on a road in in the dark at night and. Uh, I had an agent and a wildlife inspector backing me up, but uh, their their role was to play boyfriend and girlfriend, and they played that 100% of the time, uh, literally, and uh, so I was on my own, uh, and I was certainly much more comfortable with the reptiles, and uh, so uh, Johnny Libran actually pulled out a revolver and accused me of, uh, he basically said, how do I know you're not a game ranger, and uh, you know, I had been mentored the day before by one of the special operations agents, which is a very, very elite group of covert agents, uh, uh, the branch special operations, and uh, Dave Kirkland uh, had mentored me about you know, what to say if you're accused of being a Fed or a state game warden or uh, how to handle the situation. And in that case, when he pulled the silver revolver out, and I could still picture it in my, my mind and with live adult alligators crawling around my feet, uh, you know, I turned around and accused him of being a, a, a federal agent. And, and uh, so I got in his face even more than he got into my face. And then I acted very paranoid when we started loading uh, the uh, American alligators into the trunk of my car and I would ask him are you sure this is safe to do it here and uh, say all the appropriate things that would make him feel that I was uh, you know a legitimate reptile smuggler poacher commercial sort of a turn dealer. the tables bait and switch wow yeah yeah and that happened many many times throughout my career I mean and, and after the uh, basic, you know, special agent training. Uh, you know, actually, in between that case and other cases, I was loaned to the branch of special operations during uh, what was called the Atlanta Wildlife Exchange sting back in 1980, and the bus came down in 1981, and uh, I was their reptile expert then. And you know, for throughout the rest of my career, I was the reptile expert for the division of law enforcement teaching it at the flexi academy uh you know reptile uh venomous reptile safety handling uh venomous reptile uh identification so uh, um, obviously you have great experience with these reptiles so in your position with the u.s fish and wildlife when you seize these animals where do they go? Who takes care of them while all this, while their evidence and these cases are being compiled? Well, under CITES, uh, which they originally called the Washington Convention because the United States was the first country to pretty much organize CITES and say, hey, we got to get together all these countries and work together to save our fauna and flora. So they called it for years the Washington Convention. But uh, part of that convention uh, was the agreement that there would be set up facilities to care for 
uh, seized or confiscated live wildlife or plants. And that was uh, here in the U.S., correct? That was, to be, that was supposed to be here in the U.S. and in every society's country. Uh, unfortunately, even the, the United States, who should have been setting the, the best example, I think, uh, never set up a, uh, a, a facility to, to handle and care for live uh, seized animals, whether they be reptiles or primates or uh, large cats uh, like tigers or lions or, or birds uh, or flowers, you know, citizen birds, etc., etc. So uh, we at times would place them at zoos, but oftentimes if the cases were major and it was a continuing undercover operation, we could not afford to put uh, high-profile confiscated reptiles at a zoo because there would be leaks from the zoo as to, hey, we got these cool animals in. And uh, so in our case, we either cared for them at our brewing game office, or most of the time, uh, Rose and I would take the really rare seized reptiles and amphibians, and even uh, uh, you know, there were cases where I worked undercover and purchased African leopards and uh, cougars across state lines and uh, Bengal tigers and caracals and jaguars and uh, jaguarundes and uh, bobcats and lynx and uh, so you had all of these at your home yes we did my wife was uh, very experienced with caring for young live mammals I, I before we well, when I met her, I, I hired her from the local Humane Society, uh, which now is, you know, one of the, uh, the, the, the most highest thought of Humane Society in the country. But the, at the time, I hired her from the Humane Society with her background. Uh, before we were married, I showed up at uh, her front door one evening with a cougar cub in my jacket to keep it warm, uh, asking her if she would take the cub, uh, and it stuck its head out of my jacket, and that's all it took was this, these blue eyes of this cougar cub, old spotted, looking at uh, my wife-to-be, and uh, immediately the cougar cub became part of the household and our Later, my four stepchildren grew up uh, living with a house full of, uh, you know, uh, cubs that ended up in eventually a wide variety of amazing and rare species. Right. She would leave the office because we lived close to the office at the time. Every three hours, go home, bottle feed up to five tiger cubs at a time or a leopard and a a, a cougar and then run back and uh, continue her work as a wildlife inspector and three hours later she'd go back and (laughs) again, it all depended on the age of the cubs because wow. as they grew then the uh, the milk which is not 
uh, I should stress this because special feeding, we, special food. Yeah, they don't they don't take uh, homogenized milk you right. get from your local market. They need uh, cow food uh, is not meant for leopards or exactly or they they lions. need base. In fact, uh, you know there are special foods for kittens, and that right. is not that does not have enough protein and calcium in it for the the young cubs. I mean, we we needed uh, basically puppy milk replacement, uh, which we mix together every night enough for two or three days and refrigerated and then we'd warm up before you know we had microwaves we'd warm them up in a uh, you know pot of hot water and uh, get the uh, the milk just the right temperature and then when there were five cubs fighting over five bottles and there there were two of us we had four hands uh we always had one you know climbing over our shoulder or on my head uh you know trying to get to the nipple and uh so but every one of the cats uh was placed in good homes uh and uh uh you know as i continued in my career uh all, you know, all the all the reptiles were given you know as good a care or better than they would have received at any zoo this is this has just been fascinating um we could talk forever and i hope we do talk more on further episodes of our wild world but at this particular moment we need to step away and take a break so folks stick with us because we're not through yet Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You 
are listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. Welcome back. This is Our Wild World and our fascinating guest, Ken McLeod. As you can tell, working for U.S. Fish and Wildlife as a special agent and undercover, and that we do have laws in place to protect these species. And now we're getting a much better understanding of how and why those laws are in place and how they work and um, in meeting Ken, the very special people that see it through to bring these cases to court and to get sentencing for the perpetrators, the traders, the illegal buyers, the illegal sellers. So a lot of these species we only get to see in sanctuaries or zoos. So as we had said a while ago, not always are the bad guys, the sellers, the traders, the buyers, obviously bad, like the Lizard King, Ensign Wong, or Johnny Lybander, who seem like, you know, a movie version of a really bad character. So we were talking the other day about uh, some of the stories that you did in, you know, San Diego Zoo, our respected institutions, you know, university professors and their biology departments. These are not people or institutions that we would think that would cross the line, but they have. Tell us some of those stories, Ken. Well, I I have to start with is that almost 99.9% of all the academics and zoo people have been extremely ethical and honest and uh, believe in what we're doing. But once in a while, a case pops up where uh, a, uni- a tenured university professor uh, is involved in uh, taking wildlife uh, illegally or thinking they're above the law because they have a PhD or whatever uh, their motives. Uh, two quick examples would be one of my first overt cases as a special agent was with uh, uh, San Jose State University, a uh, uh, biology professor that was involved with uh, the illegal transportation and receipt of uh, protected species from other uh, states and building his museum at San Jose State University. It ended up, again, summarizing this very quickly, but it ended up with a search warrant for the university, which actually turned into a consent search because the chairman of the biology department at the time gave us consent to search the museum, but we needed a search warrant to search Dr. Balgoyan's office. We did that. We also uh, simultaneously, I had obtained a search warrant for his home because apparently he had been going out and killing red-tailed hawks and uh, American egrets or common egrets and having them freeze-dried and decorating his his home with these freeze-dried birds that he had no authority to 
do. He had a scientific collecting permit uh, under the state slash federal governments, but that was for educational purposes only, not for his pleasure. Dr. Balgoyan's case, he uh, was charged with felony smuggling of the endangered New Mexican ridge-nosed rattlesnakes. Uh, I actually went to Tombstone, Arizona and tracked down his partner and after an hour or so of interrogation got him to break and admit that he had these snakes and uh, so I took uh, a New Mexican ridge-nosed rattlesnake back in my suitcase on the airplane as evidence to charge uh, Mr. Boundy and his partner, William Myers. And uh, the teaching assist- assistant, John Jeffrey Boundy, was sentenced to 18 months in federal prison. Dr. Balgoyan got the best uh, defense attorney money could buy. It went to a jury trial. Uh, the jury convicted him, but uh, we won that case, and he was sentenced to uh, a number of uh, penalties, including 2,000 hours of community service work, uh, posting no hunting signs in the state of Oregon, where he had taken a protected species, also uh, uh, ordering his students in his class to go out and take protected species of migratory birds. The other academic uh, was Benjamin Banta. Uh, down in San Diego, another professor, he would take his class into Baja, California. Uh, covertly, I entered his class, uh, became a student, and then right before the Mexico trip, because we could not get State Department clearance for me to go along with them in Mexico, I uh, pretended that I broke my leg and I couldn't go, uh, but we were waiting for them at the border. I was down there with a group of special agents, and they had over 1,000 uh, live and dead uh, wildlife products and all kinds of live reptiles. Uh, everything live went to the zoo. Everything dead was tagged with evidence tags and went to the local evidence room at the Fish and Wildlife Service in San Diego. And there's uh, only two of those repositories. There's one in San Diego and there's one in Denver, Denver Colorado, right? Well, well, actually, there's just one repository, and that's in Denver, Colorado. Every office has an evidence room, okay. and that's where uh, we would normally keep the evidence if it's not alive uh, prior to legal disposition, meaning you know, it, either they, they plead guilty or they pay a ticket or they go to trial and they're charged with felonies. Again, it all depends on the intent and was it commercial, were they endangered species, uh, were they repeat offenders, uh, you know, another case i spent six and a half years undercover growing my hair down to my waist uh having my beard grow and having my hair and my beard dyed and assuming the identity of a uh, reptile breeder and my brother-in-law was a reptile dealer supposedly out of mississippi and uh and we called our business dixie 
land reptiles and we would uh, attend a reptile expo, which is a sales trade show monthly in Columbus, Ohio for almost a year where I met uh, uh, Rick Truant, the leader of a Canadian cartel. And he, after a year, uh, put me in touch with Frank Lehmeyer and the German uh, cartel leader, along with Wolfgang Chloe, his vice president, so to speak, or equivalent. And they would make uh, yearly trips or twice a year they would go to Madagascar and smuggle back. Uh, literally hundreds of CITES Appendix 1, Madagascan tree boas, Madagascan ground boas, endangered radiated tortoises, uh, at the time CITES Appendix 2, spider tortoises and flat-tailed tortoises. Uh, they were also involved with Dwayne Cunningham and his partner who worked for Carnival Cruises, who would, uh, Dwayne Cunningham was the comedian and his partner was a scuba dive instructor, and they would uh, go from island to island in the Caribbean where the extremely rare endangered and threatened ground iguanas in the genus Cyclura are found, and they would uh, take animals off of each island, and then as the crew, they'd smuggle them back in their luggage on carnival cruises, and that was another trial that I went through actually with Chip Bepler, who the uh, Brian Christie book was basically about. And what, uh, What's standing out to me right now is is just this like shining stop sign in front of my brain is walking into one of these institutions with these people and with a search warrant takes a certain amount of um chutzpah and uh you know confidence to you know walk into the university and present a search warrant and carry it through or walk into the San Diego Zoo and talk to the director there and say, hey, so what happened there? Uh, there was a uh, reptile dealer in uh, Florida that was uh, receiving shipments of these Malagasy species. Uh, he wasn't paying his bills to the Germans, and they were venting to me over the phone about their problems with this dealer. Uh, Tom Crutchfield, uh, who, due to my investigation, was sentenced to 30 months in uh, federal prison. Uh, his wife was indicted as well. The number two man uh, from Germany, Wolfgang Chloe, came in to meet with me uh, at the same time, in, I believe in 1996. And he was arrested and eventually sentenced to 46 months in federal prison. Uh, but what we did was we did search warrants and we charged... Uh, the vice president of the uh, reptile business in South Florida, Adam Smith, and he uh, had two interviews with me, and he mentioned the Schultz Slush Fund. And when he said Schultz, I immediately knew he was talking about Tom Schultz of the Curator Reptiles of the San Diego Zoo. And uh, Schultz was, after a year and a half of traveling 
overtly then back and forth to San Diego working with a special prosecutor that had been assigned to me for well over nine or ten years uh, to do just my cases, which is unheard of and, and, and very, very much appreciated. And I was very honored to have Eleanor Colborn of the Environment and Natural Resources Division of the Department of Justice in Washington did the see follow this through but we went after the the tom schultz the curator of reptiles at the san diego zoo uh prior to his indictment uh just hours before he was going to be indicted uh his attorneys agreed to uh an information uh file schultz is the curator of reptiles and amphibians at the san diego zoo defrauded the zoo of his honest services and money and property worth more than seventy thousand dollars over the course of approximately five years which is the statute of limitations uh specifically the information alleges schultz uh, misapplied funds to his own personal use and benefit that were derived from sales of the zoo reptiles. Wow. Yeah. So, Ken, what you're telling us is that some of this gets very political and will risk your career. And that's an important point for all of us to understand, no matter who we are, at what career, and at what stage in our life, that it is important to do what's right. I'm sorry, um, we're, no we're just running out of time. This is absolutely fascinating. So we're going to uh, have many more conversations. And what I'd like to highlight here for our listeners as we wrap up today is that be aware, students bio- in biology classes to keepers in zoos or your average hiker and nature lover, you know, be aware of what you're taking from the wild. We have laws in place to protect these species, um, to keep them in situ, in place. It's not for us to take them home, and it could be illegal. And if you see something illegal or if you're concerned, then step up and report it to the appropriate agency. So what we've learned with Ken today is how critically important these various acts and laws and enforcement rules and the people like Ken working these cases are. So, um, Ken, unfortunately, we're out of time today. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. It was a real honor, and I would love the opportunity to share more information. And we're going to carry that on into another conversation. But right now, why don't you go out and step into our wild world and think about what you see. And uh, we'll talk to you next week. I do that every day. Thank you very much, Ellie. All right. Thanks, Ken. Thank you again for joining us this week. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of Our Wild World with your host, Ellie Weiss, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now. We'll be right back.